0: So today
1: on the podcast, we have Dirk Alert. He is a composer, entrepreneur, international traveler, a king of templates and production music. Dirk, glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having
2: me. And wow, what an intro. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) So can you tell me about how you got started in music? Did you grow up in a musical family? How'd you start composing for media?
2: Funny enough, no musical background in the family at all, besides my granddad, once told me that he played flute in school or something like that back beginning okay. of 1900 something. So, uh, no, no musical background there, but I was lucky enough to attend, uh, I think the similar approach in the U S will be like high school. So the, uh, from seventh till 11th grade in Germany or till 13th grade. um, I was able to attend a school that had a focus on arts in general, like, like art, uh, acting, and they did like school musicals. And uh, we we kind of founded a school band in these days. And this is when I got my first through. I tried to make it as short as possible. I was able to get my hands on a Cork 01 WFD, that old Cork uh, workstation, which was uh a dream come true at that time for me it was about like 14 15. uh i what? had dabbled a little bit with with keyboards uh, with with piano before and i was in a in a choir in a pop, pop choir so gospel and uh, pop music um and had some singing training with that and that's pretty much it that but that one wfd led me into like Diving deeper into synth sounds and learning to play piano and uh, also even on that tiny LCD screen of the O1WD like editing and uh, it had like eight eight, uh, track sequencer built in that you could like create your own sequences and uh, that was very fun and very painstakingly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it, it, it took a long, long time to get everything right, and uh, but it was fun, and yeah. From there, it just went on and on. One thing led to the next. Uh, I had never really any formal education in terms of music, so I'm pretty much self-taught. Um, but I did attend university, so I started studying English and German at university, okay. uh, and dropped German. I think not even the first semester in because it was like boring as hell. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Then I don't want to do that. Um, so I kept with English. And, uh, because of the fact that I never had any formal education, uh, I had no idea about music theory and all that stuff and all the, uh, kind of expert view on music and all the, uh, special, words and whatever they use for music theory. I had no idea about that. I just uh, played from from my gut what I liked. And so I, it never occurred to me to actually think about a proper musical education uh, going further. But Actually, my friends uh, convinced me to, to apply for, for the actual study of music at the University of World Wars. So I went to the rehearsals there or to, to the uh, entry test And as expected, I failed the theoretical one miserably, (laughs) even though I tried to prepare that. And uh, but they had a practical part as well, where I just sat down, uh, took a guitar, played a song, sat on the piano, played a song, and sang to it. And uh, they kind of said, "Okay, we see there's a musician in front of us." So and and that's how I get in. But still, nice. (laughs) So I went through that through through. Got some training though, yeah. I got some training on piano, singing, and all that good stuff. Uh, Not even composition at that time. Always had music as a hobby. And and, uh, like I said, I didn't finish the studies. Um, It got a little out of hand, the time you spend on studying and the time you spend in the university cafe and doing anything else that has not anything to do with uh, studies. And at some point, I had to ask myself, what I want to do. And uh, I switched completely and uh, went into web design and uh, designing stuff and uh, worked as a freelancer doing websites and stuff like that. Later down the line, got in touch with a company that kind of hired me uh, instead of doing freelance work for them. I have been working with them for a few years. And uh, the boss of the company was a very, very good guitarist. And we kind of set up a project that's called Ensotica. That was like in 2011, 2012. Uh, That was my first proper band project with a really proper release. It was like symphonic metal inspired by Nightwish within Temptation, the likes. And that was my first Mm -hmm. foray into orchestral arranging and and stuff like that because I had to write the orchestra parts for that symphonic metal stuff. And uh, I remember it was, I think, Kirk Hunter was the stuff that they had back then. A uh, quick, quick while after, so we did the debut album, and uh, as oftentimes with the debut releases, the band fell apart after that. <laughs> and uh, I also <laughs> lost my job then, and my kid was born. And then I uh, it well, yeah, that was pretty much 2011. And I stood uh, in front of the decision, what I'm going to do, do I go back to web design or uh, go back to freelancing? And that was the moment when I said, OK, let's give it one more try to, to try music as an avenue. So I went back to web design, but took music in there. And back then in the day, it was like uh, I started out on Audio Jungle That is uh, mm-hmm. a marketplace where you can sell your music online for a kind of small fee, like 14, 20 bucks, something like that for use in media. And I still remember today what it felt like when I sold my very first license and uh, just realized that someone out there in the world is willing to pay 20 bucks to use your music in whatever production they do. This was the moment I got the, not the hang of it, that took way longer, but uh, it didn't take long to drop web design completely and just focus on the music side of things. And that was also the time when Facebook came up and I kind of used that as a tool for marketing, not for marketing, but for for networking and getting in touch with people. Before that, there just was no chance to talk with people from the UK or from the US and get to know people. Then just one step led to the next. And uh, I I think 2011, I was able to win a G driven creativity competition. So they had this competition for photography, videography, and music. And they had the areas of amateur and professional and I won music professional and they had an exhibition in London that I attended I think November 2011 and nice. that's where I met uh, Agus Gonzalez Lancharo who is now the head of Really Slow Motion uh, in in uh, LA and a trailer, trailer music label and um, mm-hmm. he told me about kind of setting up Really Slow Motion. It didn't exist back then and he asked me if i want to write a track for that and that's how i kind of got in touch with the trailer world and then he put me forward to those brains who i've been working with for years then and from there it just went on and on and on i'm trying to be brief (laughs) on that
1: that's excellent yeah so as far as the next step uh when did you move to los angeles
2: yeah, so, so I moved to Los Angeles in April 2018. So in 2017, okay. I had a nomination for the Hollywood Music and Media Award for one of my tracks from my album Elements. And I think that might have been helpful in acquiring the O-1 visa, like that visa that the U.S. Uh, hands out for exceptional abilities, like for sports, uh, directors, actors, musicians. That's the O-1 right. visa. And that's the one... I was granted, which allows you to stay in the U.S. for three years. And uh, you can also extend it later down the line. I have friends who live there for 25 years, just extending their one every three years. And, um, wow. yeah, settled down in L.A. for three years. Met my nowadays business partner, Ram. We are running our own company together. Yeah, 2020 obviously hit hard the whole world with, with everything going on and uh, COVID. And mm-hmm. Not going into the political side of things, but there were a few things that were going on, also in the U.S. political landscape, that uh, didn't really sit well with me. And uh, but most importantly, COVID uh, made us consider going back to Europe. And uh, since then, end of two thousand twenty, we said, "Okay, let's go back." And now we're in Spain.
1: Beautiful Spain, I like it. It's not a bad place to hang out. Well, <laughs> right. it's, oh, it's, it's it's called it's place.
2: called the European California. The I stuck, uh, stuck to the weather pattern and uh, the sun for sure.
0: Yeah, I just remember you saying that you're uh, one of the reasons that you loved being out here in California was just because the weather compared right, to right. Well, I, like where you where you're at in in Germany. It was like is it usually kind of hit or miss as far as like rain or or crazy weather conditions? Uh, yeah,
2: it's definitely way more gray in fall and gray in spring and a lot of rain spring. So you get like two to possibly sometimes three months of nice summer weather but i just don't want to live in a place where the weather sucks like nine months of the year you know yeah. so if if i have one month of bad weather or rain or kind of close something close to winter i'm fine with that the other 11 months yeah i can I'm deal with, with that with yeah right blue sky and sun
1: so you composed a whole bunch of cues for production music library music uh what was your process on that and i mean it looks like you were doing maybe 100 200 cues a year like were you just cranking out these this music on a daily basis like a new cue every day or something
2: uh good question it was way way more when i started out so i'm I'm not writing as much today which is also due to the fact that i now run my own label and just have to take care of uh creative direction for other composers and stuff like that so once you set up your own label it will become harder to write music yourself that's for sure (laughs) And um, okay, you're yeah. listening
0: to it, listening to a lot more music,
2: uh, right, right. And setting up briefs and uh, meeting clients and stuff like that. So there's just a whole different story involved. But when I started out, like I said, I started on Auto jungle, quickly came into contact with the, with the music library in New York. This is kind of where I really got into the nitty-gritty of it, and they sent me briefs on what they need. There was a lot of music for America's Next Top Model, Reality TV, Brad, Brad World, these fashion shows and stuff like that. They had a lot of placements in there. And um, so that was that was intense, but also fun, and it was a great learning mm-hmm. experience, to, especially when it comes to stepping out of your comfort zone or writing something that you've never done before or that you just are not familiar with. And I mean, in the media world or the world of media composing, uh, it is a great tool in your arsenal to be able to adjust to new styles, even when you're not familiar with or when something is out of your comfort zone. There are certain limits to it, of course. You can't do everything. But uh, I think just specializing on, on your favorite genre or just writing in your favorite genre is also not the way going forward in this type of industry. So you need to try to adapt. But that's the same for, for film composing and movie composers. You need to be able to create a wide range of emotions in a wide range of styles, possibly, depending on the client's need and what fits, fits the scene. So, yeah, it was, that was kind of learning by doing.
0: Got your feet wet.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right.
0: For people who were wanting to get into production music, like for me, like when I was talking to you about the the idea or the interest in it, and like when you were talking about docuscores like in the early early times, I was very new to it and it was very like, well, like how do you go about writing music for TV and media and that sort of thing? And I wanted to see, you know, for people wanting to get into it, is there any sort, of like maybe like three things that you would say as far as like to help people get in the in the right direction? Tips as far as arranging and things like that.
2: Yes, and yes, and yes. So, so to to get your feet wet, obviously you need to kind of analyze what's out there. You can't fly blind in this industry, so you need to go to to the pretty much known names and and uh, look around what is out there first in terms of quality, but also in terms of how it's arranged, what kind of structure do these tracks have, uh, possibly which type of tracks gets licensed more than others. Uh, so like BMG production music, universal production music, extreme music. So the big houses that get a lot of uh, placements, it helps to to look into their catalogs and see, okay, what are these guys doing? What do they have in terms of content? What do they uh, put out a lot? And maybe what is, if, there's anything what is missing from the catalog. Uh, so I'm not talking about how to get into these uh, just just to get a feel for what production music is and how to uh, understand how it works. The second thing is uh, if you don't like it or not, but you actually have to watch a bunch of TV because that's where your stuff ends up being used in. So mm-hmm. watch these reality shows uh, when when you think about going into reality TV or underscore and, and stuff for for that kind of stuff. Yeah, you have to watch TV to, to understand the medium that you want to work for.
1: Craig already watched a lot of Dancing with the Stars, so he's, he's ready oh, to dude. roll there. Yeah, yeah. Dance moms, swamp people, forensic files, lose, uh... I'm all about it. Yeah, What'd right. you call me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
0: When I when I was first doing you know some writing stuff for, for docu scores like that was one of the things writing music you tend to always your ear kind of drifts to wherever there's music and whether it's movies or TV or anything like that but I was I, it, it definitely made me pay attention more to it even though like you'll you'll hear certain parts of music played for like a very short amount of time sometimes but you you definitely become more aware of like oh like what types of sounds are they using or like how things build and uh, i think that's that's a great tip because yeah it's like you're seeing it in action it's like watching a a film score i mean sometimes you might come across a movie or something where the music is just bad and try not to you know get inspired by when something might be done in in a way that's not good but i think for like a lot of tv uh, yeah you definitely seeing it in action and it's and it's it i found it pretty helpful especially in, in just talking to you because you have such a, a great i mean you've been doing it for so long as far as like structuring stuff or building things or like every you know every so many bars you know bringing in a new element or taking something away or you know stuff like that i, I found to be super helpful
2: yeah that was the other thing that nathan was just it's the studying how it's used etc of course production music, especially for reality TV, and but also trailer music, which is just like a branch of production music, so to say, though with their own set of rules and specia- uh, specialties, but um, overall it can tend to be a bit formulaic, which is kind of in the nature of the game, because there are some restrictions that you put onto these type of cues. Obviously, take that with a grain of salt. Every rule has its exceptions and uh, you are more than welcome to um, to to break the rules and and uh, come up with your own stuff. But there, with this type of music, you have to think about the use case and you have to think about the editor side of things. So what do they need from this track? So if you have a track that gets used in a TV show, for example, and halfway through you modulate to a different key, uh, it may be tougher for them to align and reuse and uh, recut the stuff uh, at free will, so to say, because the end doesn't match with the beginning. There is a major difference between just writing the music that you like to write, so to say, or just for the sheer joy of it, for the purpose of writing something or creating something, or writing something with a specific aim in mind, like syncing to picture. and. Over the years, there are just some, again, with a grain of salt, some rules that have established that make tracks more usable over others. And this is just, usually you find that these tracks that stick to these rules are the ones that get the most mileage out of them, the most use. Because it also makes sense when you do that kind of stuff, you really have to put on the hat and try to imagine how does an editor work. How can you make the life of the editor easy because their job is extremely fast paced. They don't have time to listen through a minute of music to decide if they use it or not. Right. Like I said, that, that decision happens in the first five, if even 10 seconds. And um, it's really like next, next. <laughs> I was in, in, a, in a bunch of edit base and have seen these guys work. And this is insane. I, I couldn't do that. But um, in the end, they need to find what fits the mood they're looking for fast. And uh, so you better make their life easy because once they start to connect your name with products that work, they tend to also look for names that provide the music because they know they had been successful with these providers in in the past as well. So it definitely helps if they kind of if you leave a good impression with your work meaning you have proper sync points you have proper edit or edit points like meaning you have a pause after 30 seconds where they can cut in uh, which makes it easy for them to cut and go in and out of the tune like i mentioned in the beginning if you change the key throughout it will be very much harder for them to to align different uh, parts of a track for example to make it fit to the scene so these are just small elements that uh, make their life easier. And this is ultimately a goal.
1: Can you talk about the formula that's kind of standard, like the intro and like how you swell in and out, and then you have the pause, like you were okay. saying, with good tails? So the,
2: yeah, there, there are two different ways of approaching this. Let's call this the ideal structure. The ideal structure is you have a main theme or a main mood, that is established within five to eight bars, say. That's your main theme, the chorus, so to say. And what you want to do is you want to start with that chorus. No intro, just straight into the chorus, so you know, okay, this is what the song is about. Immediately when you listen to it for two, three, four seconds, you know, okay, this is what the song sounds like. And then you can start from there. Then you can go down, build your, for example, ABA structure or ABAB, depending on uh, what type of music also it is. but usually you have like introduction or like main part of the track to to get right into it. A section with a little bit of a build up. B section which usually contrasts what's happening in the A section because you don't want to get too repetitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, possibly A again with uh, a build up to the climax or to the end, the and usually part. ending with yeah, ending with a most importantly have a clear ending. Never do a fade out because they need these stabby ending, uh, stab mm-hmm. endings or, or defined endings to uh, oftentimes th- uh, to, to better sync it to picture. And when you have something that is not much developing in terms of melodic or structure, especially with underscore and drone type of tracks that you often use for the survival shows and stuff like that, when they just, when you need the light tension going on with just something underneath there is not much happening in these type of tracks. So what you can do is just try to introduce a new element every four bars or every eight bars, like Mm -hmm. uh, start with the drone and the bubbly synth underneath. Four bars later, you bring in a percussion loop or a tambourine or something. Uh, Four bars later, again, you can bring in a kick. Then four bars later, you can take the drums completely out again or just leave the drums running, take the drones out. So just that you have some element of interest that avoids being too repetitive for the track. Yeah, and there's there, of course, there are genres that make it easier. And then there are also genres that make still that pretty hard to not get too repetitive.
1: So did you take what you learned from really slow motion and these other production houses and then bring that all together into your newest company, which is docuscores and you have reality scores and trailer scores?
2: Um, Well, yes. And uh, of course, I mean, I have been working in the field for more than 10 years now as a production music composer. And uh, obviously through there are events like the Production Music Academy that does the production music conference once a year where you attend panels. So there's a lot of uh, information available out there meanwhile, and also through working on it myself as a composer and getting feedback from other publishers like you need to change this to make it workable, et cetera. You you get a feel for that. It's just uh, if you you do it long enough, you just get proficient at it. So I I know the ins and out of the composer side of things, and that obviously helps to translate that into the publisher side of things, and mm-hmm. uh, let other people on your team know what is needed or what is essential to make it workable for the client. So that is definitely definitely has been helpful to be in that area long enough to to know the one side, and then getting into the other side, which means not as a composer but as a publisher. So tell telling other composers what we need as a company to provide the clients with. And then obviously you get feedback from clients, what they need and what works for them. So this is an ongoing ever learning process, but of course you try to get better at it over time.
1: Yeah. So it's a a big part of it is communication with both sides, right? You're communicating to the client who's paying for it. And you're also communicating to all of the composers on the team. Exactly. It's a big job,
2: but also a fun one. That's what I just want to say.
0: Since I I mean, I've been watching your videos and stuff on YouTube for a long time, even before I ever had the chance to meet you. And one of the things I've always seen is is how you've kind of like evolved your composing templates over time. And it seems like it's always been a pretty important part of your workflow and just being able to crank out music so quickly. So do you want to talk a little bit about a little bit about that and how you've kind of started uh, developing some templates that you've been actually releasing as well?
2: You sure you want to get me started on that? <laughs> you know <laughs> what, never change. mind. Let's you know never mind. Let's change the subject.
0: Oh yeah.
2: No, no. Uh, yeah, sure. So so I'm a big fan of templates because I feel that templates help you get across the finish line faster than setting everything up from scratch. That starts with if you are just a singer-songwriter and have a mic and an acoustic guitar and open up your DAW and you want to record a song. Uh, If you have something where you open up a track and you have your vocal track and your guitar track already armed and ready to go and you just need to hit record, or if you open it up and need to set up your routing for the mic and need to set up your routing for the acoustic guitar, which takes time Mm. and just takes away from the creativity, that you could use right away when, when like this mini template with already pre-made tr- tracks is ready to go. And for me, it's the same principle, and it doesn't really matter if it's two tracks that are there ready to go or if it's a thousand tracks ready to go, uh, depending on your system specs, of course, and, and all the stuff that goes along with it. But for me, I was always on the hunt for something that allows me to write down as soon as inspiration tra- uh, strikes, without mm. thinking about, uh, do I need to load a guitar there now? Or And also, genre independent. So I wanted to be able to, if I have an idea for a rock track, to lay that down, whereas in the next moment I might have an idea for an ethnic-inspired orchestral track. So I wanted to have all these instruments at least somehow quickly available. Not if not even everything loaded, because that would be insane, like having a 3000 track template that, I mean, meanwhile, the you've had some of those enough to, uh, yeah, right. Meanwhile, <laughs> the machines are, are good enough to even realize that with, with like uh, hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes of Ram available now on, on a yeah. single machine. Uh, but nevertheless, just to, to find some shortcuts to reduce the time it takes me to browse through my sound library or to look for a sound. And With doing this for 10 years, there inevitably comes some kind of expertise in the field and just knowing your way around and how to do it. And uh, at some point, it was kind of also COVID related. I mean, a lot of stuff has been breaking off and falling away in this industry as well when when COVID hit. And everyone had to look for, not, not necessarily for a way out, but maybe for possibilities to supplement whatever you're doing through other means, through passive income, et cetera. So I just asked myself, okay, what can I do well and how can I, how can I monetize that? And so that was the idea of setting up a shop for templates because I know templates is something that I'm good at. And, uh, I, from my talks on social media and, or conversations on social media or other pay uh, via VI control, et cetera, just conversation with other composers. I knew that there were a lot of people that were struggling with that part and uh, either didn't really have an idea or didn't have the energy to sit down and uh, properly go through it. And so it's kind of like two stones with, uh, no, two flies with one stone or whatever. I just don't (laughs) know the exact English. Two birds with one stone. So you know what I mean? Just uh, helping people to get across the finish line faster while also kind of creating a passive income for me by just creating a product that I can sell whenever somebody needs it.
1: And you have a Cubase template and a Vienna Ensemble Pro template. What else do you have?
2: Well, it has grown over time. So I started out, the initial idea for my template was actually nothing that was library specific. In my experience, this goes with templates in general. There are actually two approaches that you can do. There's that, like, one 2000 track template where have everything loaded and ready to go, be it via ensemble pro or a single system that is able to handle it. Um, and I have been working with these type of templates for years. At some point, I just realized as much as I like to have everything available and just get in, write, export, done. It still tends to be kind of stagnant in a way because all these sounds are preloaded and they work. You know they work. and you rarely change it because it works. So there's no need to change anything. Of of course, every template is like an ever-ongoing process. You acquire new libraries, you you change the template, etc. But overall, it's very stagnant.
1: You get stuck in a rut.
2: Yeah, you get stuck in a rut a little bit. And uh, so my idea was, okay, what could I do to actually rediscover the libraries that I have. I feel the moment you realize you're a real composer is when you buy something only to realize you already bought that two years ago. Uh. (laughs) uh, That happened for me as well. Not that, that defines being a real composer. I just find it funny because uh, when I came up with the idea for my quick load template, that was the first one that I did, was to step away and get rid of that being stuck in a rut by actually knowing what sounds do I have available on my system. And uh, Contact has that neat feature of organizing all your stuff in that quick load menu so you don't go through that library panel but um, create like aliases for all the sounds that you have. It requires a little bit of investment of time because Mm -hmm. you have to set that up yourself one time to go through all your drives and to all your contact instruments and add that to the Quickload database. Actually, for me, it really helped to rediscover some hidden gems that I never really thought that I had or that I knew I had, but never really looked into it. So I rediscovered some of my libraries and now, This initial template is everything set up, routed, groupings, effects. Everything is there, but all the instances are empty. And uh, But through the quick load menu, you have a very quick way of, like, I need strings violin one. And then I go into the folder and see all my different... You can set it up in any kind of way. I have it in a way that I have my different developers. So I could say, okay, I need uh, Sound Iron Strings, uh, Violin 1, and then I have my Sound Iron Violins 1 in that folder. Or I need Cinematic Studio Strings or Spitfire or whatever. So uh, that way, I am not stuck to the sounds that I always use in my template but also don't need to set up everything from scratch. I just need to kind of load the sounds that I feel are appropriate for the current track that I'm working on. And it allows me a little more freedom to try out different sounds that I wouldn't have had tried otherwise if I were just sitting in my fixed template. Then I meanwhile have like a hybrid approach of this. So I still have some libraries that I just always use. I know that I always need them, so I have like a V Pro frame that has the stagnant part, so to say, but then I have the quick load template additionally in in the session so I can load instruments as needed uh on, on the on the fly or on the on the go. And yeah, that quick load template was the first idea uh for, for the shop that I did. And then from there it went on by actually by customer request. Uh, do you have a, com- a template for Audio Imperial Nucleus? Do you have a template for uh Metropolis Arc and stuff like that? And sometimes I just thought about myself what what might be useful and uh Mm -hmm. this is an ongoing process so far i have audio imperial nucleus and jaeger jaeger is more like a trailer oriented template uh there is metropolis arc there is uh somoscore the orchestra and some stuff planned for the future i also have like the this quick load template also in a version for complete control nice and the last one that I released is also an empty template, but to give like give you a head start if you want to incorporate VN Ensemble Pro. So that is like an empty template with all routings in place where you can, in a modular approach, either have it on the same system or even use up to three, four slave machines and, and a master machine with V Pro on different computers. So it's it's very modular, but Still, these templates are not ready to go. You still need them to cultivate them with your sounds that you have available.
1: Right. So you just did the routing for them and got that stuff set up. You did exactly. like most of the, the most of the boring work that nobody <laughs> wants to do.
0: I don't know. I, I maybe I'm weird. I, I find that stuff fun. Like there's times I've just like made made new templates just because it's like I like the setting up and going through and I don't know. It's like almost um, kind of relaxing in a way. Cause you're just, it's like you're just kind of putting something together, and I enjoy that part of it. I know some people are very yeah. I, th- like, I anti- think
2: there are people who have an yeah. I think there are people who have a knack for it, and there are people who don't. And uh, people who have a knack for it can. I find it meditative actually mm-hmm. to create templates.
1: Exactly the same. Well, I'll take the other side of that.
0: I hate it. Yeah, he's like, give me a <laughs> blank page, and I'll build it myself. I think ahead uh,
1: ahead. I think routing all the reverbs and everything, and just getting things set up for plug and play is brilliant. Though that's a yeah. pain point for a lot of people. I mean,
0: that's even a great simplistic template to to have. Is just like I have something like that too, where it's just a blank project that just has a bunch of effects tracks in Cubase with just like specific effects you normally always use, or maybe some group tracks or something that you just route everything to for you know for stemming out or something like that. Like that's another really cool, worthwhile template having, you know, if if you're not into having like all your tracks and everything laid out, like just having that.
2: Yes, it's nothing else than just having macros for just stuff that you do over and over and Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you can take a shortcut for that and and reduce the time it takes you to do that, why set up the reverb sense every time anew when you open a project? Like you said, it makes sense to have a template where you at least have most of the reverbs or groups that you regularly use already set up even if you don't have any instruments loaded or any audio tracks prepared but even if uh, you as a, as a guitarist recording guitars it makes sense to have a guitar channel prep with your favorite plugin. if you mm-hmm. if you use uh, m plugins and stuff like that to to ready to go so you load up the project and you can record already you know so yeah. it's just a way of taking a shortcut for things that just repeat
0: yeah it's very easy to over time doing certain things you know a few different times before you're like why why do i keep creating new guitar tracks or, or new instrument tracks or or whatever it's just like yeah it's just i think through doing that i think especially working for Soundiron, like you know because i learned a lot about you know just how can you template your workflow or make things you know to allow you to get more done quickly because I know Mike and Greg and, you know, they're pretty big advocates of that stuff, like anything you can find to like speed things up, you know, like experiment automated. with stuff. And I do that with video editing as well, you know, stuff like that. So it's like anything to be able to knock stuff out a little bit quicker is always, always a good thing.
1: And then Dirk, right. I saw you, you also have a course and it says how to write music for libraries, film and TV placements. So what do we learn in this course?
2: Uh, it was just my idea of, of uh, same that I said with the shop, just a way of trying to create more avenues of securing your uh, cost of living and, and just. It's not all about making money, but of course we need to survive as well and need to buy our food, and uh, so this is just another means of putting food on the table and uh, education. I think is a huge factor, not only in this industry, in in. Many, many industries. And uh, again, especially with COVID, people being at home, having time to look into other things. Uh, I just saw a rising number, not of all, only of courses being offered, but also requests. And since I have been doing my kind of educational YouTube channel for the last eight years, probably, and since I said I have been doing production music for the last 10 years, this is something that I know one or two things about. So I just felt, okay, let's put together a course on how I approach it, how I tackle different genres, how to write in different genres, kind of a general overview how the whole industry works and some ways that can help you to get into it or um, just help you hone the craft of, of working in the field of production music.
1: Well, I have to imagine that people are asking the same questions over and over again, right? So it's constantly like, what doll do you use? You know, very simple questions and you're repeating yourself a lot. So at some point you're like, let me just package all this information together and then you can buy it if you're interested, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, pretty much exactly that. (laughs) People (laughs) ask and uh, you shall deliver.
0: So what MIDI packs you buy in? <laughs> MIDI chord packs, maybe <laughs> What MIDI chord packs you buying, baby? What's going on with that?
2: No, uh, I have not bought a single MIDI chord pack, but I'm selling MIDI packs on my page as well on the shop. It's just, I mean, I have created so many. Actually, that started with you guys back, back, back in the day. I remember for for the, oh, the Apocalypse uh, loops, uh, uh, Apocalypse percussion ensemble. I created some MIDI loops for that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of in the nature of myself or did that long time ago before media packs was a thing yeah maybe maybe not but uh the thing is so i have some general things that i usually do i have a library of myself through through the years of my work uh, accumulated of stuff that I use regularly. Same with templates. So if you have some stuff that you use again and again and again, you can have like a library of little MIDI templates, MIDI ideas uh, that you can regularly use. And if I have them, why not sell them? So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: at some point it just makes sense to create a pack of percussion loops, of string loops, action trailers, string stuff. These are just these are not full compositions. These are just like idea either little elements that work within a mix or a cue or just idea star song starters so to say or i just something to give you an idea. And i don't see nothing wrong about that like uh, nobody is copying anything. I I consider construction kits from sample libraries worse where you have the full track recorded and just say you compose something by rearranging the loops from that track, but in the end, I mean, it's still that same track unless you just take a little element out of it. But So Mm. I'm not a big fan of construction kits, but uh, something that gives you an idea or something that triggers a spark to create something new, even if you don't end up using something from that media at all, or maybe you use the loop in your track, but you create something around it. I'm totally fine with that and totally uh, do that myself as well. So
0: do you do you normally just like take the MIDI clip and just like export that as like a little MIDI file or are they like associated with whatever percussion library that you're using? Or how, how does that how does that uh,
2: for, the, for the most part, it's library-specific. So I, the percussion loops that I have released are specifically for heaviosity damage, for example. Uh, and uh, it makes sense because a lot of these libraries uh, have their own standards. Not everything follows the general MIDI standard. Of course, you could release MIDI packs that are general MIDI compatible, but that doesn't help you in the world of uh, sample libraries and DAW and contact and stuff like that because every developer has their own mapping mm-hmm. and that's a lot of work on the client side to make that fit. And I think then it's just easier to, okay, okay, this is if you have damage, these loops are for you. If you have sound iron ape, these loops are for you. For me, it's kind of good in a way because I can create the same product for different avenues, like same midi loop pack for damage as I could do it for damage two or for, like I said, sound iron ape, uh, and, and other percussion libraries. Uh, and I don't necessarily need to sell them all in one pack, you know, it could say, okay, there's one product for this one product for this one product for right. this. Actually, I haven't done that yet. I should do that. <laughs> so,
1: there you go. You got an um, but, idea.
2: Right. The next idea is coming. Um, but it, it just doesn't really make sense to me to to broaden that out. It's it's library-specific. Same with the uh, acoustic guitar loops that I did uh, for orange tree samples, acoustic guitars. They have a very special way of being programmed, and it just doesn't... It neither works in the general media world, and it also doesn't work with, with other developers like Ample Sound or whatever's out there in terms of acoustic guitars. So it is very... Oftentimes this stuff is very library specific. Other the strings packs that we have, they work pretty much with any type of short string that you may have available. Mm-hmm. So that's a little broader in its approach.
1: There's not a lot of standardization between developers. Um, so you have a Cubase, you, you said you have a Q-based template, but you are also using Studio One. So what prompted the switch there?
2: I started with Cubase templates, Studio One followed shortly after. I do have some templates available for Logic as well. Okay. Um, some templates are not available yet for Logic because I'm just restricted in the way I can build these templates because I just have a, like a MacBook with 8 gigs of RAM, like an old 2013, I think, or 16. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I need to get a proper Mac to be able to offer the same templates for, for Logic as well. I just can't set them up right now. Otherwise, I would have have them in the shop already. Uh, my main DAWs are Cubase and Studio One, that's for sure. And Studio One has taken over the spot of which DAW I open most on my system uh, over Cubase with the one simple reason. Uh, Cubase will always be my first love and my main DAW that I just know inside out uh, because I've been working with Cubase since the, since is actually. That was uh, the first version that didn't even have a piano roll editor. That wow. came later. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was the first time I had my hands on Cubase. Cubase has one little bit of a disadvantage. It just carries a lot of load from the years of development. It's like hmm. 20, 25, 30 years old, nearly. I think 25. And has always been improved, of course, and it works for sure. But Studio One came like a few years ago, came along as the fresh player built from the ground up. And to me, I cannot really pinpoint exactly what the main differences are. In the end, it's timeline, a record, and the play button, and you have some tracks that you can work with. But nice. to me, Studio One feels a bit snappier in the way they approach, like dragging plugins onto the track and stuff like that. How yeah, that's to really duplicate cool. Things. It's just, just, just minor things that just make it snappier to me. But the most important thing is uh, when I work in my big template, my 1,000-track my like template, uh, with pretty much every channel has like Slate VMR uh, put into the chain, so I have some kind of EQ compression right away available for every channel. So it's a pretty hefty template overall. And uh, idle Cubase has that sitting at around 50% ASIO or CPU load. And wow. Studio One, with this pretty much same setup is sitting at around 30%. So that hmm. was, for me, mostly the reason to... They the, It just seems to me that Studio One is a little more efficient in uh, utilizing the resources of the system. Like I said, overall, it just feels a little bit snappier, but it also has its downside. It still has teething problems in some areas. And sure. uh, I, have been, <laughs> I have been lucky enough to be in contact with some of the developers and, and uh, implement, or not implement, but suggest some of my ideas, what I think will be helpful for the workflow. And some some of these things have even been realized. Uh, what I love about C One and the whole team behind it is that they're incredibly responsive to user feedback and also incredibly responsive in terms of implementing feedback into new updates. So they're very much behind it to give these suggestions an ear and to realize them as soon as possible, if possible at all.
0: Yeah. It's funny because I've seen you and Alex on online and like yeah, I'd always see you guys like going back and forth. Like yeah. one, like one day he's like yeah. all about that. Oh, you know, I went back to Cubase, and then you'd be on PreSonus, and then you would go back, and then you get. I would always see you guys kind of like.
2: Yeah, I think uh, for 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 being on the videos, etc. I think it's more like a question of customer service, like showing some peers at some point just working Studio One for the Studio One folks, so they can see how it works in their DAW, and then some base working in cubase for for the other folks to for them to see to work in their DAW. Mm-hmm. Um there is for me there is not really a trigger that makes me decide today I use Cubase over Studio One or vice versa. Just what I feel like. But when I work for myself, most of the time I'm actually using Studio One.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile. Well you've inspired me to open it. I've had it for a couple of years and I don't think I've ever opened it.
2: It's definitely worth a try. It's just, uh, I mean, they are in version 5.5 already as well. And I mean, uh, uh, for a long time, Cubase was way ahead of the game when it came to media editing and uh, organizing of big templates, expression maps and all that stuff where where Cubase was on the forefront of making life as a media composer or as a big template user, uh, making that easier. But uh, others have been listening and have been following along and implementing their own solutions. And meanwhile, the kind of expression map uh, similar to Cubase, what Studio One now has, is, is very solid and very convenient. And in parts even better done than Cubase has done. But then Cubase has some other functionalities that Studio One does not have yet. So it's, it's, uh, it's not a battle between the two. They both have a place, in my opinion. Nice. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think I think Studio One's definitely like if you are a Cubase user and you're thinking about switching DAWs, that's like the most like Next makes step. the most sense to to go to that because wasn't some people from Steinberg actually like working in in there as well?
2: Yes, the, the, the minds behind Studio One have been former. I don't know for sure, but I think like former Newendo. Steinberg yeah. uh, developers or employees or New Endo. At least yeah. uh, there there are some people from the Steinberg camp kind of yeah. to, to Studio One to, I guess, improve what they couldn't realize in Cubase. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know for sure. But the thing is that there is, of course, a lot of sim- similarities between the two, but then look at any DAW. Like mm-hmm. I said, they have a start record button and tracks and a timeline, and there you go. So mm-hmm. video editing programs, if, if it's Premiere or Final Cut Pro, in the end, they all are there to do the same thing yeah there's always going to be those basic
0: functions of you know like you got your tracks over here you got your main timeline arrange area right here and i used to use logic and eventually there was just so many things about it like if logic ever had slip editing i probably would have stayed but there was just like certain things about logic that was and there was logic pro 9 at the time and i eventually started seeing a lot of people i knew using cubase and i was just like all right that seems like something i want to give a shot especially with the slip editing stuff because i was doing a lot of guitar editing at the time and uh yeah, ever since then I was I I I messed around with Studio One for a little bit a little bit, but I, I can't I can't get myself to like, you know that that time it takes to like immerse yourself in a new DAW or like you know any kind of like a new software. It's like I haven't found a real reason to like yeah invest that time. Maybe maybe one of these days I'll just like work on a different type of music in it.
2: Like they say, stick to your horses, especially if you're successful mm-hmm. or or comfortable in what you're doing. Uh, if if you feel comfortable with what you're working with and i mean i know you're in, on cubase and and works uh great and works fantastic for you uh there's just no need i mean there there is uh the new uad uh daw there is uh able there's so much other stuff that you there's repo, of course there's mm-hmm. so much other stuff that you could try out just for the sake of trying it out i actually just recently installed a demo of Fruity Loops on my system, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> just to see, just to see if I am able to possibly create. I mean, I look at it from the from the shop side of things to try to develop as many different templates for different platforms as, as possible. Mm-hmm. But I gave up on on FL to be honest. Uh, it's not yeah. really the DAW to create templates with. At least not for me.
1: It gave up on you.
2: Right, it's so it's so different for me it makes a little more sense to look into different DAWs and see how I can uh, make my uh, products work with them and if I want to create a template for logic I need to find my way around logic before I can sell a template to people because there are a lot of people out there that know a lot more about logic than I do but the basic principles apply there as well I just found some funny funny things that kind of contradict the name of the DAW It's called logic and some stuff not That's logical? Not really makes sense to me. Not logical. Well, just an example. Uh, in my in my main template, the, the busing routing system, so I have the instruments, they go to the sub-buses, and that can send up uh, summed up in the stem buses, so to say. So you have two tiers mm-hmm. uh, that, is, that the signal is running through. And in QA, Studio One, pretty much any other DAW, when I select the stem and so that it exports the stem because the signal is running through. It's coming from the instruments, through the instrument buses, and then into the stem. If I do the same thing in Logic and solo that second tier stem, it exports silence. Although, audibly, the signal is running through. So in Logic, you have to create an empty MIDI event on that stem to be able to export the audio. It's crazy. Only on the second tier, the first tier, if you export the first group, so to say, that is fine. You export it and the audio runs through. You don't need to do anything. It only happens on the second tier. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it kind of contradicts, especially since every other DAW and every... Logical real-life scenario, if I root my system here and root my uh, my audio here and root it here and it runs through that bus, then I export that bus and it's done. No, mm-hmm. logic says, yeah, the, I see the signals running through, but I don't give you that. You need to create an empty region on me before I export that. Yeah, this is so, not
0: in this house. That's not the way we do things. Uh, yeah,
2: right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the pet peeves I have with logic a little bit. And I had to search for that for days on the internet, actually, to find that solution. How to export stems in a a uh, second bus, so to say, because nobody seemed to be aware there was no possible.
0: Yeah, that's that's <laughs> so always fun when you're, when you're just like scouring through the internet trying to find the solution for some stupid thing that happened, like have you ever had that happen in Cubase or something where like some little thing got changed or, or when you didn't even realize it and you're like, why is this like cursor thing always like, like I had a situation where normally when I would hit stop on the spacebar, the cursor would go back to where it started from. But mm-hmm. I had some things tweaked. And it was like the word cursor follows the events or something where like when you're trying to line up certain MIDI notes with like picture, it was like to where it always followed that. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I totally forgot that I had that enabled. And then I had a thing to where if I had like a a MIDI file or, or like, you know, like little MIDI section selected, it would keep like the cursor would jump back to that. And I was just like, what? So I was like trying to figure out, like, why is it not just going
2: back? Yeah, especially when you have like custom settings and uh, especially after uh, like like a major or a point five update or something and everything (laughs) is changed, although it says to import all your settings. But then you realize, well, it says it does, but it doesn't. Uh, Yeah, that's the fun part.
1: Yeah, we have our worst bugs in logic. For our products like people will message us about midi feedback issues and like pedal sticking and just all kinds of weird weird strange bugs that only exist in logic
2: yeah we don't want to bash anyone every every yeah. daw has its place and i mean i have so many compos i've seen so many composers doing fantastic work in logic as well so mm-hmm. like i said just just stick to your horses and just go with what you're comfortable with if you're starting out you have the freedom or the, maybe the curse of choice. Uh, that is really something that you cannot really define.
0: Pick your own poison, as they say.
2: Yeah, right, right. Once you once you settle in on a system, I mean, there's never reason to learn something new and, and uh, look beyond the actual plate. If you're comfortable with Cubase and uh, don't see a need to switch to Studio One, for example, then just simply don't. Just stick to what you're comfortable with and what helps you get the job done. This is, in the end, what counts.
0: Yeah, it, I think it is It is worth like maybe experimenting with sometime because I really do love that feature of just dragging in plugins. I think that's really cool. And it's one less thing of like right-clicking, load an instrument track, select which one you want because if you have like a bunch of different virtual, either like virtual instruments or samplers, like just having all those right there, yeah. just, like that in itself is a pretty big uh, workflow. Well,
2: so some some other stuff as well that is in my opinion just superior. Back to the topic of creating templates, and when you have a bunch of instrument channels, for example, where you want to have the same, like like the Slate uh, Virtual Mix Rec or something like that, that I oftentimes use, where you want to have the same plugin on all the channels, but I want to not to load it from the get-go, but copy the one that I have on the other channel. So in Cubase, you can only copy one by one. So you can hold the Alt key and then drag it over, then it lights up green on the empty spot, and then you can drag it in there. In Studio One, I can select all the channels. Don't even need to hold the alt key, move that plug in from the other channel once and it will apply to all the channels at once. Things like that, that just make it, like I said, a little more snappy and a little more modern, I would say.
0: That's pretty cool. I'm learning about it right now. I'm like, you're, uh, you're trying to convince me. I think you're doing a good job.
2: <laughs> Not trying to convince anyone. Like I said, just use what you feel most comfortable with.
1: So. If a composer is just starting out and they're like trying to get their feet wet and they're trying to switch from amateur hobbyist to making money with music, do you have any advice for those people? Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) That's a good start.
2: Uh, And uh, okay, if you're still listening, then uh, maybe. (laughs) So it is, in my opinion, like with any other profession. It is not necessarily something specific to being a composer or being an actor or being a carpenter or whatever. You need to hone your craft and to need, you need to be good at what you do. If that's the case, so if you feel comfortable with the type of work that you can put out, you will inevitably find an audience for that. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be within a day, and I know for a fact, either from myself also from other fellow composers, that the transitioning part is the hardest from being not a full-time composer, doing it as a hobby on the side, trying to build something, build momentum, up to the moment that I say, okay, I'm going to quit my day job and I go in full throttle and try to make a living out of it. That is the hardest part to do. You need a lot of blood, sweat and tears to to get to that point. It's uh, There's no, no sugarcoating it. It is hard hard work and especially in the beginning it is even more work than it is later down the line when you start to gain your returns of, of your music place so so-called mail money when you get your music on tv and you get the uh pro statements and stuff like that for the usage of your music but up to that point you just have to crank out the music you have to get better at the music that you crank out and you have to find the partners to partner up with to help you getting it into the right hands, meaning getting it to the client. So your music ends up on air, which is where the money is music that's sitting on the shelf with the library doesn't help you earning money. It just sits there on the shelf doing nothing. So it needs to be used. So you need to find partners that help you getting it used. That brings us inevitably to the next question. What, how do I choose my partner to uh, get the music out there? Uh, which which would be a po- podcast completely on its own? How to, how to find the library to work with? What tips can I give you? Be consistent with your output. So keep honing your craft. put stuff out there no matter whether you have a publisher or not. put stuff on YouTube, on social media, build not necessarily a fan following, but um, if you expose yourself to the outside world, you will, automatically get in touch with other people that may be in need of your services, for example, or like your music and say, well, you might be fit for a library. It's rarely the case that the library gets in touch with the composer, usually it's the other way around, but, uh, things have happened, of course. So, Mm -hmm. but if you don't expose yourself to the outside world, nobody will hear or know about you. So you need to find an outlet to get yourself, to make yourself heard. And at the same time, also, it's the same principle. If you're looking for a girl and go into the bar with a big sign on your head, want to dot, 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 you will likely not end up successful. You're going to strike out.
0: You're going to end up in jail is what's going to (laughs) happen.
2: Possibly. So, and the same is, I mean, when you walk around to and approach publishers or people who run libraries, dude, you got to work for me. Uh, that is off-putting in some kind of way. And a lot of these, we're still talking about people. We're talking about relationships. Not necessarily everyone is your friend. Uh, But Hans Zimmer once used to say, first and foremost, you've got to be a good hang to make contact with people. You need to be somebody that is fun to be around with. The same applies here. And then there are events that help you get closer to the people that you need to get in touch with like for example uh, the production music association that once a year sets up the production music conference in la unfortunately it was only virtual the last two years but it's still happening Uh, i was lucky enough to attend a few of these and uh, this is in my opinion one of the absolute best possibilities to either get in touch with library runners Everyone is there that is kind of name and game in in that business, and also they have amazing content with panels and information. So there's just stuff available that is not available anywhere else on a on a biggest scale, so to say. These type of conferences help you get in touch with these people, but then you also have the small scale. Uh, Search locally, look for uh, production houses that do commercials. Look, uh, if you're in a village somewhere really far out on the land, obviously you may need to take a trip to to the nearest bigger town. Uh, might be i don't think that next to the goat there will be <laughs> an advertising company but you never know uh but yeah so so something where a little bit industry is kind of centered and placed uh might be helpful because these are the these industries need their products and and companies advertise so there needs to be someone that does the advertising for them these advertisers mm-hmm. need music That's one of the things you can try to get in touch. If it's more geared towards film, of course, you can go to universities that offer film scoring programs. You can offer your services for students, start to uh, get in touch with people that way. And then last but not least, of course, there is the way of cold emailing. I wouldn't suggest cold calling. That might be a little too much. But of course, you can like create an introductory email about who you are, what your favorite music is. But most importantly, don't make it about you. Make it about the library that you're approaching. So why do you contact them? You have a certain style in your library that I see fitting with what I do. Mind taking a look to to what I have is that something you could be interested in. And try to find out as much as possible about a library that you want to approach. Try to be personal. If you know who the library you are, usually a website reveals who the runners of the library are or who your point of contact at this library is. Try to make it personal. Never start with something like hi without a personal
0: to whom uh, it may concern. Yeah. Hello. uh, Yeah. Right. Exactly. People over (laughs) it.
2: You don't know how many emails even we as a label get, uh, weekly that, uh, just ignore the minimum standards of kind of proper communication so no research. this is something to really keep yeah research and, and proper communication so uh this is something to keep in mind so in in germany we used to say kind of translates to it it comes out of the woods as you shout into it so i don't know that there's a proper saying for uh in, in english as well but it's, it's kind of gets the sense across so the way you behave the world will return it to you mm-hmm. i
1: like so, that
2: if you have proper manners, you might be treated with proper manners. You get what you deserve. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, I think something interesting is that historically musicians have been poor, like court gestures and uh, painters and artists. Like, we, we haven't been living in the lap of luxury. And then there was this weird period where session musicians made a bunch of money and rock stars happened and all this. But the majority of people making music or doing art are not making a living doing it it's a it's a hobby it's an outlet but if you're making a living from music in any way you're in the top 10 percent of of that industry probably so it's funny that you that's say don't true, do yeah. it, it when you say don't do it you could just supplement your coffee job or whatever with making music and it's not always important to monetize your hobbies either
2: that's another thing uh, if you are really serious about making that a proper career path like I said in the beginning you need to be willing to put your blood sweat and tears into it it's a grind it's a grind exactly but you always need to be aware that there is a possibility of failing
1: hmm. oh, that yeah. is
2: something that goes along with that because there's no guaranteed success in that field you can be the uh, an outstanding musician that doesn't necessarily mean that you will play the stages of the world so I think a good, proper sense of realism is also helpful. You can dream, of course, but you also have to every now and then put these dreams into perspective and see, okay, how realistic is it to actually get there? Or the other way is, uh, of course, to to build your own a step-by-step plan and see, okay, what steps do I need to take to get to where I want to be?
0: Yeah, reverse engineering anything, I think, is always such a great way to to kind of approach things because it's like, all right, I want to do this. All right, well, now what are the steps that you need to take to get there? If you're, your first thought is, oh, I just need to meet that one person and that's going to get me the job, but you're not putting in all the 10,000 hours into your craft. Like you're, you're skipping some steps because you're just trying to shoot for the stars right away. But it's like, well, you got to build a, a rocket ship first. You can't just jump on a trampoline and hope that's going to get you there, you know?
2: That's when Icarus learned that the wings don't work <laughs> in the sunlight, <laughs> because he skipped some steps
1: on the yeah. way. My personal goal is to get into a fender bender with Steven Spielberg, and then, you know, shake hands. And that's the dream. Then, then what? what? What after that? Well, then my, my charming personality wins him over, and I'm scoring Saving Private Ryan too. Okay, all right. Now we're talking. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah, it's that easy. I just want to I'd be like, can I get eaten by a,
0: a T-Rex in one of your next Jurassic Park movies? <laughs> that's all I want.
2: All right.
1: So, Dirk, you're a well-traveled individual. What's a typical day right now for you? What's uh, what's your schedule? It's nighttime where you are, right?
2: Uh, well, it's, well, not nighttime. It's like half past eight in the evening. So it's early evening. It's still bright outside. That's, that's a cool thing about being closer to the equator here. So it's uh, mm-hmm. till nine, half past nine. It's still... Uh, not dark. But yeah, I'm, I'm a night owl anyway. I used to, okay. I'm used to work at night and I'm used to working at night and uh, since my business partner is still in the US, a lot of phone calls happen after 10 due to the nine hour time zone difference. And that gives me the freedom during the day to take care of some other stuff, take care of some family stuff, pick my son up from school, uh, enjoy the beach. Usually during the day, I do most of the office kind of tasks, emails and all all that stuff. And then the creative part actually starts after 10 for me. And uh, Spain has that great tradition of siesta, which (laughs) comes very handy for me. So, So I tend to sleep like six hours a night, usually from three to nine, something like that. And then have another one or one and a half hours of siesta in the early afternoon. Uh, so that I get my around eight hours of sleep a day. I try to to still maintain that amount, although it does not always work. <laughs> but uh, that gives me the freedom. And since since I have my studio at home in a separate building, so to say, so outside of the house, I can pretty much work all night if I need to and want to and uh, take care of family and other stuff during the day. So cool. I love the freedom that comes with that kind of job.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great schedule. Um, When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do?
2: Uh, Either just grab the car, head 10 minutes down to the beach and take a swim. That usually clears the hat space pretty quick. Or oftentimes, well, oftentimes, luckily it doesn't happen so often that I feel like uninspired or have my hat not in the space where it needs to be. But uh, what helps for me is is just catching up with some movie I haven't watched yet. Something you know, just checking out HBO Max or Netflix. Some some of the new releases, something that I haven't caught yet. Or um, just yesterday, uh, I I had some time left and I knew that uh, that number eight of the new season of Picard was still waiting for me because it was released on Friday and I haven't had the time to check it. So that's that's an hour easily gone, but that helps to to focus on. Something or not focus, at least uh, mm-hmm. just getting getting some information into your eyes without much thinking about it. And uh, usually after that, I'm I'm back in the game and can concentrate on
1: whatever I want to do. Nice. That's a good answer. Uh, okay. I've got a few more questions for you and then we can wrap this up. Uh, the first one is, do you have a best recent purchase under a hundred dollars?
2: Yes. And Craig will like that, because uh, €99 Euros intro price for the latest Neural DSP release for the Clean Tone King.
0: Oh, yeah. I haven't gotten that one yet. I have all the other I ones. I got it,
2: and I think it's awesome. Yeah. And uh, since they, they, they had a sale going on, so I grabbed, the uh, I think, the California one for €49 Euros as well. So these these were the latest two. So the first one I got was the Soldano emulation and uh-huh. uh yeah I just think that the Neuro DSP is, is just like in their own leak. It just sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah they, I, I'm not yeah. a guitarist but I watched the demo video of the Tone King and I said I always wanted to have a Fender ramp and mm-hmm. this is the closest I can get to <laughs> actually putting a Fender ramp into my studio. So I'm fine with that and it sounds gorgeous.
0: Yeah that's the I think that's the only one I haven't I haven't gotten my hands on yet. Uh the, the band I play in is actually endorsed. Uh, through through neural, so uh, usually they're pretty nice and send stuff over. I just haven't hit them up yet, but I've been I've been wanting to check that one out just for that. Have a nice you know nice twangy tone, you know, because I mean they've done so many other like like the Gojira and like the Foreign Nameless. They have so many that are like geared toward metal, but I think it's cool that they're they've been diversifying and doing some some other stuff that's not metal.
2: I, I highly recommend to check out the Town King, not only for the twang, but also just the clean tones are so buttery and nice no matter which guitar you throw it it just sounds gorgeous obviously it sounds best with a with a strat or with a with a, mm-hmm. a tally, but it's it's amazing i really love it
1: so are you running direct into your interface and then using that or do you have a pedal board or what's what's your chain uh
2: i have some uh, i will not show these i have some cheap 29 nine dollar <laughs> amazon pedals to yep, yep, run yep. stuff through. <laughs> Um, and and a volume pedal just in case it's needed. But for the most part, I actually don't use them. Sometimes I use the compressor because it helps to give a little more body to, to the guitar. And I have a bunch of, I have more guitars than I should have not being a guitarist. <laughs> I know you say uh, I'm not a
0: guitarist. So I'm <laughs> like, I see a few, one, <laughs> two, three.
2: Uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, the latest one I got that I'm really proud of. It's actually the, you know, Toman is the European equivalent to like Guitar Center, like yeah. the whole Europe-wide music distributor, and they have their own line, Harley Benton guitars. I know that they are, I think meanwhile they are available in the US as well. It's, it's like the, I th- what was, uh, I think Harley uh, uh, Jackson is the, for either Sam Ash or Music Center has Jackson as like, they're cheap knockoff guitar type of things for the mm-hmm. original brands, and harley benton is that one for um for toman and okay. uh they have this, this was my latest uh, acquisition last year the uh, harley benton pro series this thing is a beast and sounds gorgeous and looks gorgeous by the way as well it i think nice. this
0: is a beauty nice it almost kind uh, of reminds me of like a prs or something a little bit
2: Yeah, I think it's a pure-ass knockoff, to be honest, and uh, (laughs) I didn't want to name it like that. But, um, yeah, it sounds gorgeous, and uh, it's just fun to play around a little bit. Like I said, I'm not a guitarist, and if I need good guitars, I just call Craig and say, okay, can you record something for me, please? (laughs) Craig, you want to just,
0: like, noodle, drop some noodles all over this track?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And... uh, But uh, if I record something myself, it's usually straight into the interface and then doing everything else uh, in the software. The only thing I'm still tinkering with is getting, getting a big sky at some point to create these lush type of reverbs. On the other hand, I mean, we have that in the software as well, but yeah, straight in and doing most digitally.
1: Yeah, I understand that in the box. Keeping it in the box. Keep it simple. Uh, The next question is your favorite YouTube channel or podcast or TV show at the moment. Uh,
2: Like I said, yesterday I caught up with Picard, which is kind of one of my favorite TV shows at the moment. Um, I wish I would have more time to watch TV. Uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Recently, I have been watching a lot of YouTube shows. No specific. I'm a big fan of Peter McKinnon. I love mm-hmm. the stuff that he is doing more What's on up? the documentary side of things. <laughs> yeah. What's up, everybody? Um, <laughs> I think he is just, uh, I, funnily enough, I have followed him from early days on, actually. I mean, he's been grown so fast and mm-hmm. has been become that YouTube superstar. Uh, I was with his channel very early on, I think, when he was still below 1 million subscribers, uh, like, i don't know how many but uh, for a while and just like his personality and uh, the way he uh, explained things and since i'm a little bit interested in sim- cinematography and uh, video obviously due to my channel and doing uh, videos myself mm-hmm. uh, this is this is one of my favorite channels to watch but even more for like his when when he's uh doing this these documentary style videos where he's like even just on a, on a boat trip with his friends. So he has a very good hand and eye to to showcase that very cinematically.
1: He's a good editor too, yeah.
2: Yeah, right, right. There's just a lot of... He has a very eclectic taste in picture and composition and how that all works together. And he's just uh, seems to be at least a nice person. Uh, I mean, we only know the online presence, not the man himself, but... Uh, uh, To me, he's very impressive with what he has achieved within two or three years, not not even. Uh, That's one of my favorite channels. And uh, yeah, actually, I'm watching less music-related content. I'm watching more uh, gear stuff uh, in terms of video camera reviews. Just recently, because I'm on the edge of thinking of uh, either a MacBook Pro or a Mac Studio, like I said, with the templates, I need a bigger Mac to run that stuff and to provide other templates. And I want to have a PC counterpart. I'm on PC for the most part, but I want to have a proper Mac system. And the new Mac Studio looks impressive. And recently I've been just watching a bunch of review videos and uh, benchmark tests and all that stuff, because I'm still not sure if I want to go for that little box, just the Mac Studio, or if I want to go for the MacBook Pro maxed out that i can have like a mobile rig and set it up wherever i like without the need of anything else because there you have the screen and everything is built in so to say
1: yeah i've heard amazing things about the m1
2: yeah it's uh, it looks very very impressive so uh still not decided let's wait for for may when the next bmi check comes around <laughs> let's see <laughs> how much mac is in there
1: right that's a good way to do it um, my last question is What are some goals or achievements you're looking forward to in the next couple of years or um, like goals that you are trying to check off the list? And what's next for you?
2: My first goal is, to be honest, is of course to to push my company forward that I have with my business partner. So to uh, get more of our music on air Mm -hmm. into clients' hands, get more of our music that we create published worldwide and make it uh, available and usable worldwide through a net of sub-publishers. We are still, well, we have come a long way already, but we're still in the process of building a bigger network of having sub-publishers in in Europe, in the UK, in in Asia. That is one of the main goals, of course, to to get the company forward. Personally, for me, I am digging back a little more into the world of trailer music, that has some. Uh, I was away from that for a little bit because the past couple of years I was tired of all this just sound design only and more bigger Brahm hits.
1: <laughs> you got you got tired of the sonic booms.
2: Yeah. So when I started out trailer music, there was still the need for like melodic, big epic kind of uh, stuff, and then came the big bram boom sound design era then we luckily fading away uh had this era of trailerizing old tunes 80s 90s pop rock tracks and trailerizing that uh thankfully that's dwindling as well and i have the feeling that the whole industry goes back more to melodic content, big, memorable themes that just make you want to watch the movie. And this is actually where my love, my personal love, musical love lies to, to create that type of music. And uh, personally, I want to go back to write more of that and go back with some publishers and, and uh, also do it on my, on my own myself with my own company to get more of that stuff out there. To, to get a license and get it used and try to come in, We'd love to see my music in, in, in a Marvel campaign and similar. So working on that.
1: Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be amazing, yeah. Well, Dirk, this was so much fun, man. Thank you for coming on. Um, we will point people to your YouTube channel and to your templates, all of the available templates and docu scores. And uh, we look forward to seeing a trailer that you put in for Marvel sometime soon.
2: That would be great. Thanks for having me. It was a joy talking to you guys.
1: Absolutely, man. Craig, catch you next week. All right, man. See you later. All right. Peace.